Let's pray together. Lord, I pray today that you'd help us to understand how to live out this passage in our present context here. I pray for every single one of us that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves and confess our sin that you might cleanse us and use us in this world. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's, there's just an awful lot in this passage to unpack and to understand and to think about how it applies to us today. And, and one of the things that we see right off the bat is that, that Paul is trying to address a misunderstanding. You know, it, it's easy to misunderstand text communication. I remember uh, I was pastoring my first church when text messaging became like a, a, a thing, and uh, we had uh, we had a huge conflict between these guys, and and it was, and it was always getting into it over text messages, and nobody ever intended anything bad with the first text message, but it would always get misinterpreted, which would lead to a a, 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 a mean reply which would lead to a mean, and, and it, just, it just got out of hand. And so this happened multiple times. And so finally, I, I finally got to the point, I told the staff and the leadership, I said, we don't communicate anything else by text message. Everything is person to person, especially anybody that you got any conflict with, because you can text somebody, have a nice day, and they'll say, well, why didn't they text, have a great day? I mean, you can, it's easy to misunderstand. Well, Paul wrote something in a letter that was totally misunderstood. Understand this, not everything that Paul wrote is in the Scriptures. A lot of people think that everything that's written about Jesus by the apostles is in the New Testament. It's not, and the reason is God never intended it for it to be. So Paul wrote, we know of four letters to Corinth. He may have written more, we don't know. But we know of four for sure because he, they're referenced in, in the Bible. And so we actually have the second letter that we know of, and we have the fourth letter. We don't have the first letter or the third letter, and uh, we don't need them. If God had intended for them to be Scripture, they, they would have been included. So Paul is referencing the first letter that he wrote to him. So when it says 1 Corinthians in your Bible, it doesn't mean the first letter that he's written to him, but it's the first one that's in Scripture. So he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, meaning previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, so they, they completely misunderstood this. So verse 10, he says, not at all meaning. So they took it to mean something he didn't mean. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go, to go out of the world. So Paul is clarifying here that when he said don't associate with sexually immoral people, he wasn't talking about People who are not believers. He wasn't talking about people outside of the church. He was talking about people, and he's going to clarify this in a moment when he says, bears the name of brother, people who identify as Christians and are part of the fellowship, and yet at the same time are openly, blatantly living in sexual immorality. So we see from this that, that we have to have different expectations for Christians and non-Christians. Think about this for a moment. Why would we expect anybody that hasn't read the Scripture or doesn't believe the Scripture to base their life on the same foundation that ours is based upon? The reason that so many people are, are living in 
in sexual immorality in our culture is because they have a whole different sense of what's right and what's wrong that has absolutely nothing to do with God's revelation through Scripture. And Paul is not talking about those people. They are our mission, after all. Paul is saying that we're not to associate with people who are part of the fellowship, identify themselves as Christians, and yet at the same time blatantly live these ungodly lifestyles that cause other people to question the sincerity of the church. And so he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. I don't know if you understand this or not, but, but Jesus has sent us into the world. If you're a believer, you've been born again, the Bible explicitly says, right from the lips of Jesus, that he is sending us into the world. Here's where it's recorded in John 17, verses 14 through 18. This is one of Jesus' last prayers. We, we call this, uh, referred to as the high priestly prayer because he was praying on our behalf to the Father. And here's what he says. I've given them, meaning his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, so notice that language. We're, we're not to be of the world, meaning our life is not driven by the teachings and the understandings and whatever's popular in our culture in the world at the moment. We're, we're not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, and listen to this. As you, he's talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So when we begin to think about this idea of who we're not to associate with, the Bible is not teaching us not to associate with people in the world who are engaged in immorality. This is not what the Bible is teaching us. This is not who it's talking about. Years ago, I was a, a church planner in Tennessee, and we'd started a new church, and uh, we, were, we were building a building, and one of the guys was uh, not working at the time, and he was so faithful to come and just do all kinds of projects around the church. And me and him just spent hours and hours together building this church, and one day we were out finishing the concrete on the sidewalks. And, and we, we just, we got, you know, we're just out there for hours working. We just got talking about all kinds of nonsense. So you ever, you ever joke with somebody, but you're not really joking? You're only kind of half joking? Well, we, we, had, we, had, uh, we had just had a few conflict with a few people. You know, anytime you got two people together, there's going to be conflict. So we had a little conflict with some people. And so we're out there finishing this concrete. And I said, Gary... We really just need to give up on this whole church thing and go start us a compound somewhere. And he said, I think that's a great idea. And, and, we, and you know, we're kidding now. Okay, don't, don't, don't take this out of context. It was a joke. But he starts naming the people that he'd like to let in. And I said, yeah. I said, that, that's a pretty good one. 
And then he named somebody else. And I said, no, we don't want them in. They're just too difficult, hard to get along with. So we came up with a list. You know, we, were, we, had, we had hours to wait for that concrete to set and finish it out. We came up with a whole list of who we'd want to let in, who we'd want to keep out. Because ideally, wouldn't it be nice if we could just surround ourselves with people who are just like us, think just like us, and we just get along with them all the time, and we didn't have to deal with all this stuff in the world. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if it was possible? And I don't know if it would be nice or not, but it kind of sounds nice, but I do know this. It would be complete rebellion against the mission that Christ has sent us on. Christ has sent us into the world. We were meant to be a light in the darkness. Not a light in the light, but a light in the darkness. And so when we think about what does it mean to disassociate ourselves from people, who are openly engaged in sexual immorality. It doesn't mean people who are in the world. They are our mission. And how are we going to influence them if we never have any interaction? And so Paul here is not talking about people who are in the world. He's talking about people who are in the church identifying as believers but yet not living as believers and therefore causing even pagans outside the church to question whether there's anything legitimate there to consider or to follow. So Jesus has sent us into the world. But I, I want you to notice something else. One of the problems that we run into in reading the Bible is sometimes people are not sure how to apply it, and they just want to make only a direct correlation. And so they'll read a passage like this, and they'll say, well, uh, nobody in our church is sleeping with his father's wife, so this passage doesn't even apply to us. N nothing there for us, done with that one. But there, it's much broader than this, much broader. And so even Paul, in dealing with this, starts to list other things. So notice what he says in verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So, no, so notice his list here. Greedy, swindlers, idolaters. So there's, it's not just sexual immorality. There's many things that you can do as a lifestyle that will destroy your witness and the witness of your church. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about us living our lives in such a way that we compel people, not drive them away. And so collectively, as a church, we're to live a life that draws people to Christ. So verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Well, we need to camp out here for just a second because I think many people really don't understand what, what the Bible is talking about when it, when it lists these ways of life. The, the Bible is describing here current ways of living, not isolated actions or past ways of living. Now, let me show you another passage that I think brings a lot of clarity to this. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Here's what it says. This is the message that we have heard from him, meaning heard from the Lord, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, light representing purity, righteousness, holiness. 
darkness representing sin and evil. So he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Now, walk is used in the Bible the same way we use it today. You heard this saying before? He can talk the talk, but can he walk the walk? We use it today in the same exact way to talk about people's way of living, lifestyle. So he says, if we walk in darkness while we claim to have fellowship with him, if we walk, if we're living in darkness, lifestyle, ongoing, not, not, a, not a single act, not a moment of failure, ongoing lifestyle. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, now notice this. This is, this is how we know for sure that the Bible is clearly distinguishing a way of life from an action. Verse 8. If we say, he's talking about those who are walking in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, so, so what does all that mean? It means that there's a difference between sinning as a way of life and committing a sin. Every believer has sinned, past tense, every single one of us, believer and unbelievers, everyone has sinned. But even once we're saved, we continue to sin. There are moments in our life when we yield to our own sinful nature and we do things we don't want to do. Even Paul talks about the struggle within him. And so we sin against God. There's times that Satan sets up a trap for us and we fall into it. And we're, we're led into sin. And we sin against God. But the difference is, when the believer sins against God, the Holy Spirit convicts us about this sin. And at that moment, we have a choice to make. We can either in pride and arrogance say, we haven't committed any sin. We can justify what we did. Or we can confess what we've done as sin before God. And the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even people who walk in the light sin and need to confess and ask for forgiveness. It's not people who walk in the light and have moments of failure in their life that we're to disassociate with. It's people who walk in the darkness and are proud of it. People who claim to be in fellowship with God and claim to be walking in the light, all the while openly, knowingly, living in rebellion against God, violating even the standards of unbelievers. These are the people that absolutely destroy the credibility of a church's testimony. And so these are the people that Paul is saying, 
We're not to associate ourselves with. For I am writing to you now not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not somebody that used to be these things or once did these things, but people who are living in this lifestyle at the moment. If we were to disassociate ourselves from everybody that's ever been involved in sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or drunkenness or swindling, then, then, then we'd just have to empty out the church building. We've all been guilty in the past of different sins, but that's not what the Bible is talking about here. It's talking about a way of life. You see, maintaining an effective witness in the world is one of our motives for not associating with people who claim to be Christians but live ungodly lifestyles. And so if you look back at verse 1, where this whole discussion started, Paul says it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And then notice this. He says, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Paul's concern is that the first century Greco-Roman pagans had a higher standard of morality in regard to sex than people in the church. And therefore, when they saw this activity in the church, it destroyed the church's witness and their ability to share the gospel with them. Skip down to verse 8. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. And we, we talked about that last week. He, he's symbolically talking about the Passover uh, the fact that Jesus has made it possible for us to have new life, and we live in this, we celebrate this. Let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Aristotle uh, was not a believer, but Aristotle observed something. You know, if if something is part of God's creation and his natural order and and it's true well it doesn't really matter if the person that observes it is a believer or not it's it's still true isn't it and Aristotle observed years ago about powers of communication and he wrote a book that still is used in universities today to teach people it's simply called rhetoric and in his book he said that one of the things a speaker must have in order to move an audience or persuade an audience is that they must be perceived as having good character. It doesn't mean they had good character, but they have to be perceived as having good character. In other words, their hearers must be convinced that they're sincere. When people See, the church preaching one thing and people within the church doing something else. They perceive it as insincere and the message is simply not heard. So one of our motives for disassociating from people who identify as Christians but are openly living a life of sexual immorality that everyone knows about, an ongoing lifestyle, is so that we don't destroy the credibility of the church's 
message. Verses 12 through 13, I want you to notice how, how Paul closes this up. He closes it up by, by bringing the focus upon ourselves. You see, when we think about this, we need to examine our own sin and repent so the Lord can use us to impact others. When Paul deals with this man in verse 1 and begins to talk about this man in the church at Corinth, the, the focus of chapter 5 is not the sin of this man. It's the inadequate response of the church. Paul said, and you are arrogant, talking about the church, and you are arrogant, ought you not to mourn? And so notice what he says in verse 12. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Well, uh, really bad word in, in that, those two verses the word judge, people hate that word. Um, this idea that, that we should never say anything about anything, that's not what it means to not judge people. The Bible says here, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So the Bible says that we are to judge people. But, but what does that mean? Well, first of all, Words can be used to mean different things. Don't assume that every time you see the same word in the Bible, it's used in the same way to refer to the same thing. So Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about judging. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, probably the best known, most quoted verse in the world today. I'm not making a joke about it. I'm dead serious. Judge not that you be not judged. It's that most people quote it in the King James. I don't know why. In the world, you know, I hear people quote, quote this to me. I made a post on Facebook just a couple months ago, and somebody in the community sent me a message. In the King James, judge not, lest you be judged. People love this verse because they interpret it mean we should never say anything about anything. Everybody should only be focused about themselves. But let's read more of what Jesus said verse 2 the next verse for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye so, so Jesus is just a master teacher a storyteller and he often uses exaggeration for effect so he compares a speck with a log and obviously you can't have a log in your eye it's exaggerated for effect but Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? So there's a, there's a difference between looking for fault in others' people and confronting a fellow church member about a blatantly evil lifestyle. Jesus describes people who have a log in their eye, meaning they have all kinds of sin they need to deal with, but yet they find this little tiny speck in someone else's eye. So what Jesus is teaching against is, is self-righteousness and hypocrisy that it causes us to excuse everything that we do while criticizing everything that everyone else does. So he says in verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. So when we begin to think about sin, the first place we need to look is our own heart. 
When we think about sexual immorality, first place we need to look is our own heart. We need to deal with ourselves first. When there is a log in your eye, verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Here's the second part, though. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Jesus said that it's not that there's never to be a time that we're to point out sin. It's not that there's, there's to, to, to never be a time we're to try to help somebody get the speck out of their eye. The problem is when we don't first deal with our own sin problem. You know, when I first started preaching, there's a lot of things that you just learn by intuition. They don't really teach in seminary. And I, a lot of preachers seem to learn this. That, that I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the easiest, safest way to preach is to rant and rave about something that nobody in the church is doing. I mean, that's just, that's the easiest, safest way to preach. Because it just really feeds our self-righteous nature. Because we can look at other people and, you know, and, and get all fired up and say, sick them, preacher, you know, get those people. And we don't have to think about our own sin. And yet, the Bible's teaching us that the place that we need to look first when we begin to think about sin is our own heart. And so Paul says, in, verse, in chapter 5 here, he's not dealing with the world. He's dealing with the church. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, he's an apostle, but he doesn't have any apostolic authority over the outsiders, just over the church. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I know that we have a lot of people that are just consumed with compassion. And compassion is wonderful, but everything in life has to be balanced. And sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is tell somebody the truth. And when somebody's living a life of open, blatant rebellion against God and flaunting it and bragging about how it's a true expression of their Christian faith, it is not compassionate to tolerate that nor to pat them on the back or cheer them on. Paul says we're, we're to deal with this. And the Bible is crystal clear that we're to get sexual immorality out of our own lives and we're to get it out of the fellowship of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Listen to what it says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And this is a sobering verse. We, 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 need, we need to listen to this. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now remember in chapter 6 that we're going to get to shortly in Corinthians, he says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. When it says these people have no inheritance, it doesn't mean that people who once did these things have no inheritance. It means those that continue on. So we're to change, we're to put these things out of our lives. 
Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Another passage that teaches us the same thing. It says in this passage, Put to death, therefore, what is, earth, what is earthly in you. And then it gives a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So, so, so notice what it says. Even the church at Colossus, he's pointing out that there are people who once walked in sexual immorality. They once walked in evil desire. They once walked in idolatry. There were people that this is what they used to be, but they're not anymore. He says, but now you must put them all away. And he gives us another list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So when we begin to think about our testimony. You don't need to be perfect to be a witness for the Lord. In fact, if there was a perfect person, they would have no testimony. No testimony of being forgiven, no testimony of experiencing the grace of God. Part of our testimony is that we once were some of these things. But by the grace of God, We've been washed, we've been cleansed, and that's why we no longer live in them. Let's pray together.